I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. All right, I think that the panel has been uh, very patient, I'm sure very interested in everything that's been said, and perhaps we might ask who would like to start the questioning, uh, Dr. Sagan. Well, uh, I'd like to begin the questioning, if I may, with, uh, with one uh, general line of, of inquiry. Our present understanding of the evolution of, uh, of life on Earth is that uh, it's a slow process of evolution by natural selection, that human beings are the product of uh, several billions of years of uh, random mutation, accidental effects uh, leading up to what we are now. Now, other planets certainly have environments quite different from those uh, on the Earth, and uh, therefore we would expect that beings that evolved there would have even greater differences and uh, would not look closely like human beings. And that's why I was interested to uh, see that the characterization of the uh, inhabitants of uh, the supposed uh, extraterrestrial space vehicle were, with a few minor differences, very closely human. Head, two eyes, something like a nose, mouth, hands, feet, and so on. And this seemed to me that uh, much more likely that this was putting, uh, projecting human experience onto perhaps something else. I think the thing that uh, strikes me most is the fact that not only did these creatures breathe the Earth's atmosphere with no difficulty, but you were able to breathe the spacecraft's atmosphere with no difficulty. Is that a question? No, it's a comment. Well, that's all I can say. Is did you notice any comment? respirators or anything of that uh, sort? Not from my position, no. I'm certainly not a psychologist, but uh, some aspects of the story that uh, Mrs. Hill told, uh, particularly the, the needle incident, uh, seemed to me uh, recognizable from uh, having read Freud. I discussed it uh, with Betty herself, too, and, and uh, Betty, as, a, as a, a qualified state social worker, is aware of the dream symbolism and that sort of thing. Uh, may I add something? Sure. Something that I've discovered since the hypnosis, and I don't know if this would apply to adults, but in hospitals, when it's necessary to obtain a blood sample from a small infant, it is done through the navel. I think that uh, you might, uh, uh, correct me if this is wrong, at least point out to one fact. Uh, you said it was a very large needle, larger than anything that you had it ever was, seen before. It was a long needle. That had, it had been plunged into your navel. I can't say that it was plunged in, but, it was but they started to insert it, and I had pain, and I was under the impression they stopped. But there was no blood or physical evidence of puncture. I wasn't aware of this until 1964. Well, uh, so, uh, whenever it happened, if it did happen, you didn't detect any wound uh, on your body. No. That's Carl Sagan expressing his skepticism to Betty and Barney Hill on The David Schumberg Show in 1967. I think a skeptical mindset has to be brought to bear on any claims regarding UFOs. And quite frankly, 
The UFO proponents that I spoke with for this podcast expressed the same opinion. But there's significant disagreement on what, exactly, constitutes evidence in this context, and at what point you can conclude that abductions are happening. Carl Sagan asserted that extraordinary evidence of extraterrestrial visitation was required. A half-century after the Hill experience kicked off a succession of abduction accounts, what is the state of the evidence? I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 11, Extraordinary Claims. In the 1980s and 90s, interest in UFO abductions peaked, partly because of the work of Bud Hopkins, John Mack, and David Jacobs, and partly because the concept had been adopted by popular culture, most notably in the X-Files and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. However, It was all fueled by the sheer number of people who truly believed that they'd been abducted. UFO researcher Alejandro Rojas. There are, and I don't think the general public realizes this, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that report these experiences, that believe they're having interactions or abductions with aliens. And some of these people are very credible, lawyers, police, people in the military. That, I think, makes it very significant. During this time, there was a change in the standard abduction story. Instead of driving lonely roads at night, the abductee would be in bed, asleep, and would be pulled from their bedroom up to a craft where they'd be subjected to examination and experimentation. The new narrative was consistent with a medically recognized condition known as sleep paralysis. Skeptoid host Brian Dunning. Sleep paralysis is when you wake up. Usually it's shortly after you've fallen asleep or shortly before you wake up. You're conscious, but you're unable to move. And you see, you often see some sort of an entity there in the room with you. And that entity often sits on you or pushes down on you. And you feel a weight on your chest holding you down and you can't move. That's a classic case of sleep paralysis. It's a very thoroughly documented actual phenomenon. This is not new. Samuel Johnson defined the conditions of sleep paralysis as a quote-unquote nightmare in his Dictionary of the English Language in 1755. The term nightmare eventually evolved to today's meaning of a bad dream. Now, where the Betty and Barney Hill story comes into it and impacts the history of sleep paralysis is what character people have seen sitting on their chest during these episodes. Prior to this, prior to the 1960s, in Western society, it was always the old hag. That's where we get the term feeling haggard from. You feel haggard today because you were up last night because the old hag was riding you around like a donkey. People would wake up and they would see this old hag, a crone witch-type character, sitting on them or standing over them. After the Betty and Barney Hill story changed and this idea of the gray alien entered sort of the pop consciousness. Suddenly we had alien abductions. People would wake up reporting gray aliens in their bedroom. The 1980s, I think, was when this really peaked. University of California Irvine professor 
Elizabeth Loftus. Sleep paralysis. It's very scary if you don't know what it is. And they end up, you know, in the hands of somebody like Hopkins or John Mack, who manages to convince them that this is a sign that they were abducted and that's what they need to deal with. And through suggestive interventions, interviewing, hypnosis, whatever, they help these patients, clients, whatever they are, conjure up images that then feel as if they're memories. Even among supporters of the idea that UFO abductions are occurring, there is an acknowledgement that at least some reported abductions are the result of sleep paralysis. It's a fascinating topic. And the Betty and Barney Hill story had a huge impact steering the history of sleep paralysis in the United States, which I think is just marvelous. Belief that aliens have visited the Earth remains strong in the U.S. In 2017, 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment commissioned a survey regarding UFOs and aliens. It found that almost 39% of Americans believe that aliens have visited the Earth, and 18% believe that aliens do abduct people. But despite this, alien abductions seem to have slipped from the public consciousness in recent years. Author Terry Matheson. I remember you couldn't go through a supermarket checkout line without seeing at least one tabloid with a picture of an alien on the front cover and a new story about somebody who'd been abducted by aliens. Now, I can't remember the last time I saw anything like that. It seems to have just dropped right off the radar. As I've mentioned earlier in this series, I think this is largely due to the escalation in the scope and strangeness of abduction stories. When you are constantly one-upping the previous story, there comes a point at which the narrative becomes so incredible that it can't plausibly be made more extreme. There is a limit, and for abductions, that limit seemed to be hit during the Hopkins era. Matheson has a similar take. It relies on the 1958 book Morphology of the Folktale by Vladimir Propp, which looked at how folktales are structured. Prop argued that there are only certain events that can follow from a previous event. Take a fairy tale, for example. Cinderella's mother dies, okay? What's going to happen? There are two possibilities. The father will marry again or he won't. Then he marries again. The stepmother will be good and loving or hard and ruthless. Well, makes a better story if she's the latter. And he went on and on showing how There are certain developments in every story that the story is limited by the number of things you can profitably put into as a subsequent event. And I think that gets us back to this whole thing about what happened to the abduction myth. The myth ran out of things to add on that would be believable. Though alien abduction has receded from the public consciousness, that doesn't mean that research on the phenomenon has ceased. After the break... Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You might remember the name Dr. Don Dondery. We heard about him much earlier in the series. He was one of the authors, along with Bud Hopkins, of a paper about alien symbols. He's a retired associate professor at McGill University, and he's active in the field of UFO investigation. I spoke with him because I wanted to find out what is currently happening in the field of abduction research. He struck me as a little like Bud Hopkins in his beliefs, but far more measured and with a significant background in science. Dr. Dondery has boiled his theories into three simple propositions about alien abduction. The first proposition is some of what people report as UFOs are extraterrestrial vehicles. They actually are from somewhere else. Proposition two, some of those vehicles have ET crews, what in popular language is called aliens or extraterrestrials. And point three, some of those crews catch and release people to study us. That's commonly called an alien abduction. I think all of those three propositions are true, but notice that each of them has a sum in it. So not every account is true, but some of what people report as UFOs are ET vehicles. Some ET vehicles, not all of them, have ET crews. And some of those ET crews to put it in plain language, mess around with us. They grab people, bring them aboard, do examinations and other things, and put us back. So that's the story. That's what I think is happening. I wondered what, as a scientist, led him to assert these propositions. Given the lack of physical evidence of abductions, what could he point to as evidence that these events were actually taking place? There are many reports like this going back many years And those reports have basically been classified, studied, and documented. Many of them are military people. Many of them are people in positions of public authority, like cops, uh, RCMP officers in Canada, military people in the United States, many of them accompanied by videos and radar plots. So the evidence is cumulatively overwhelming. There's no lack of evidence that is both instrumental That is, people are not just saying something, but they're showing you a video, showing you a radar plot, showing you, and this is acceptable, a drawing that they made from memory right away. A scientist or a naturalist goes about his or her work exactly the way I'm describing. You go out into nature, you look at something, you write it down, you take a picture of it, a video of it, you catch it, or in the case of science, you set up an experiment in which you control some conditions and you see what happens. They abduct people from their houses, from their cars, 
they test them, they examine them, they put them back. That is, from my point of view, known. What their motives are is unknown. That they mess with us is known. And that's not good. During our conversation, Dondery asserted that he believed that abductions were happening. He did not venture a guess about the number of abductions that might be occurring, though I asked. He also didn't put forth any particular cases as being exemplary, though he has written about many cases. His message to me was simply this, abductions are happening. To be transparent, I don't believe they are. And this has nothing to do with Dr. Dondery, who is smart, sane, and very gracious when talking to a person with much less knowledge of the field and an admittedly skeptical outlook. Instead, it might have to do with the way that I'm wired. Let's go back to the very beginning of the podcast. I talked about the lights that a group of us saw across the expanse of a New Hampshire lake. Two of us concluded that they were alien spacecraft. The other two, myself included, conceded that we couldn't identify what the lights were, but we were sure they had nothing to do with aliens. Why is it that, in the face of identical experiences, we would draw such different conclusions? Is it down to psychology? I asked the University of New Hampshire's Mark Henn about this. There have been a few neat experimental analyses that are showing some reliable differences that are intriguing. Like, for instance, a memory test where we give people a list of words. Say, for instance, the words might be pillow, blanket, night, moon. The one thing that's not in the list is the word sleep, but everything around that list talks about sleep. Or we could do the same thing with everything around the world, the word music, or everything around the word sweet. If you give people these lists to memorize, both skeptics and believers will come up with the same number of words right that were on the list. So we have very similar memories there. But the believers will also tend to remember the words that were not on the list, the target word that was not there, more than skeptics do. Not only does the believer group remember a word that wasn't on the list, but that word that they falsely remember is the explanation that pulls together the other words into an understandable whole. Next, he talked about an older study that examined how believers and skeptics reported observing paranormal activities. About a century ago, when psychology was getting started and the spiritualism movement was getting started, so this is not UFOs, but this is seances, you could experimentally set up a seance such that you knew, because you set it up, that this thing was going to move by itself as you had your hands held around the table and were talking to the dead people. Now the question was, would the believers report seeing the things that actually happened, but also other things that didn't? And would skeptics actually decline to report the seemingly supernatural things that they saw? It turned out that for those experiments, Again, it was the believers who were more likely to see things and report things that didn't happen. The skeptics actually did, on average, tend to report the unexplainable things that did happen. Finally, he talked about how preconceived ideas are very difficult to change. This study he describes involves medical students. 
Some of the students believe in Darwinian evolution and some in Lamarckian evolution. I had to read up on what the difference was. For our purposes, you just need to know that these are two different theories on how traits are passed down through generations. Darwin's theory has turned out to be the scientifically valid one. Lamarck has been disproven. Medical students should definitely understand this and see evidence of it during their studies. Hen says of the students, They tested them going into medical school on their belief system regarding evolution. And they're specifically looking at beliefs that are Lamarckian versus beliefs that are Darwinian. Then they're going through medical school where they are using biology on a regular basis. And they're learning all these different things. And they measure them coming out of med school. And the people who came in with Lamarckian beliefs left with Lamarckian beliefs. So for the Lamarckian students, despite a period of study during which their views on evolution are demonstrated to be wrong, they still persist in their beliefs. Even when we get information that disconfirms our beliefs, we tend to process it in a way that doesn't challenge those beliefs. We get this new information and we put it in the same old boxes. We put it in the same cubby holes. It takes a lot for us to build a new cubby hole to put things into. This dynamic cuts both ways, of course. It can be hard to shake believers from their beliefs. But from the believer point of view, the same can be said of skeptics. And that's a common criticism that abduction proponents level at scientists. They aren't willing or aren't able to expand their notion of what could be real. Dr. Don Dondery. If you take a giant ship out to Tierra del Fuego, which is the south end of South America, and you and your big wooden ship from Europe go exploring, the natives don't even pay attention to the ship. What they pay attention to is these little rowboats that come out from the ship because they've never seen a rowboat, but they have these little rafts. So the rowboat for them is an improvement on the raft. They can imagine that. The ship is something out of their imagination. They don't even pay attention to it. So science, in quotes, doesn't pay attention to what science has no clue at understanding. That goes for 99.9% of all the professional scientists employed in, say, the U.S. and Canada. It's basically a forbidden topic because it doesn't fit in science. The facts don't fit in science. There's no theory connecting those facts with what else we know. And so scientists shrug their shoulders. Let the crazies deal with it. That's it. There is no science. I can understand the frustration. It's not just that the scientific world is dismissive of this work, but that doing scientific work on this topic is very difficult. Simply put, there's essentially no money to fund the research. There isn't a major government grants program to which someone interested in investigating the reality of alien abductions can apply for funding. But here's the thing. It's been almost 50 years since the Hill abduction, and to my knowledge, there's no single piece of physical evidence that you can point to and say, look, this proves that an abduction occurred. There's nothing that's been found that would seem to warrant a government's funding of research into abductions. Yet despite this lack of evidence, 
there remains the public perception that extraterrestrials are visiting us. I talked with Kendrick Frazier, who is the founder of the magazine Skeptical Inquirer, the magazine for science and reason. I asked him about the difference between the public perception of extraterrestrial visitors and scientists' perception. It's an incredible gap of understanding between what the scientific view of this subject is and what the popular believer's point of view is. What's also interesting to me is both are motivated by the same curiosity. Astronomical scientists deeply want also, I think, to discover any signs of intelligence, life in the universe. And we have many programs trying to do that. At the same time, they know that in the public, this is a strong belief and desire also. But scientists are trained to be critical of evidence and not to accept things on face value, whereas many people in the public who are interested in these things put their skeptical side aside because they want to believe in this so much. And we have found this is to be a great danger in science. Think about Carol Rainey's assessment of Bud Hopkins' work on the Linda Cortile case. He wanted so badly to prove what he believed to be happening. He wanted to prove that it was actually happening and that he had evidence. This seemed to me a recurring issue in the abduction research field. In the absence of physical or substantial third-person eyewitness evidence, researchers would latch on to whatever corroboration they could. Thus, the use of regression hypnosis as evidence. You're not going to wake up. You're in deep sleep. You're comfortable. Relax. Or Marjorie Fish's construction of the star map models. This has to be worked out, so I have to figure out the absolute magnitude for all of these stars. Or the photos of body marks sent to Bud Hopkins. These are very characteristic. This is the scoop mark rather than the straight line cut. It's science-like but not with the same rigorous standards as science. The collective enterprise of creative thinking and skeptical thinking working together keeps the field on track. So as exciting as this subject is, as interesting as it is, as fascinating as it is, those are signs that wishful thinking can go and take us out of reality. And it's something most scientists and certainly psychological scientists are well aware of. But it's something that I think more people who are fascinated with the subject as fans need to be aware of. Exercise critical thinking and skepticism towards these ideas. Scientists haven't found any evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence, and yet the mythology is that we have them and they're coming and they're here and they've been here and they're here all the time. The Betty and Barney Hill case requires this skepticism. The reality for me is that most, but not all, components of their story have convincing, non-extraterrestrial explanations. The regression hypnosis elicited the story of Betty's dreams. The Hills mistook the light on top of Cannon Mountain for a UFO. Slow driving and numerous stops account for the missing time. But the explanations for parts of the story seem a little less plausible While I understand that wind-up watches were easily broken, 
It seems like quite a coincidence that both Betty and Barney would break their watches at the same time in this way. And even the best explanations of the craft hovering above a field near Indian Head rely on Betty and Barney to be at near hallucinatory levels of fatigue and stress. The reality, though, is that the onus is not on skeptics to disprove every point of the story. For an event this incredible, there needs to be real evidence, not just a story that is hard to explain away at points. The absence of a completely satisfying answer to what they saw in the field does not mean there was an alien spacecraft. The burden of scientific proof lies with proponents of extraordinary stories. Remember that Carl Sagan said, at the heart of science is an essential balance between two seemingly contradictory attitudes, an openness to new ideas, no matter how bizarre or counterintuitive, and the most ruthlessly skeptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. This is how deep truths are winnowed from deep nonsense. Although I am skeptical of the reality of the Hill abduction story, I think it's important to acknowledge their contribution to popular culture. They, and particularly Betty, created a narrative of alien abduction so compelling that it has proven durable for half a century. Through all the changes over the years, the core of abduction tales, whether purportedly real or fictional, has remained true to the story of the events of September 19, 1961. It's an astonishing legacy of cultural influence to emerge from a late night drive through the mountains of New Hampshire. Next week, on a bonus episode of Strange Arrivals, my interview with Sarah Scholes, author of They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. There was also a CIA-sponsored panel called the Robertson Panel. And in there, scientists and military personnel were specifically looking at the effects that UFOs and UFO reports might have on people and chaos and panic. And they essentially said, if we get too many UFO reports, it might clog our intelligence channels and it might cause, you know, hysteria in the streets. So what we need to do is essentially make propaganda to tell people not to worry about UFOs. And so just throughout history for decades and decades, you have these instances of the government trying to manipulate public opinion and interpretation of UFOs, but then also saying like, we have no interest in them and neither should you. And it just leaves people feeling like they can't trust the government on the topic, I think. And they're not wrong. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.